Jeremy Hardy Speaks to the Nation, a series of one-sided debates in which presenter, but not in a natural history way, Jeremy Hardy wrestles the burning issues de nos jours to the ground and holds them there for just shy of half an hour. This week, how to eat food. Good evening and thank you for being with me at this difficult time. As Peter Donaldson might have said if he were alive today, which he is, how to eat food. I shall be addressing the mechanics and ethics involved, the history of our cravings and the practicalities of providing ourselves with food. And joining me on this journey through the guts of the subject and firmly shaping it into a topic thoroughly digested are two people, both of whom are also alive today, thanks to food. <laughs> Paul Bassett Davis and Ricky Pepperdine. Hello. Hello. Now, Vicky, tonight's subject is eating, and part of your last name is Pepper, which is, of course, a seasoning, and the other part is dine, as in eating dinner. I was just saying... Yeah, no, I, I heard what you said. Yeah, well, you didn't answer. Yeah, well, it wasn't a question. Um, you just stated that Pepper and Dine are parts of my name in a rather desperate one-show linking kind of a way. And, well, you know, I'm not promoting anything and you don't have insanely white teeth. So I think we both know this isn't the one show. No. <laughs> Shall we move on? Yeah. So, how to eat food. First, let me address the manner in which we eat. There is no universally correct way of putting food in mouths. Some people use fork and knife, some use fork and chopsticks. Paul. <laughs> Paul, welcome to you as well. Thank you. Now, in addition to being a writer and actor, you're also visiting professor of nom nom nomology at the Free <laughs> University of Lunch. Indeed. So what can you tell us about the social role of cutlery? Well, Jeremy... The table knife was introduced to cut food into manageable pieces, but also to see what was inside it. This was especially useful in Tudor times at the court of people like Henry VIII, where guests were served with elaborate dishes, such as a lark inside a duck, inside a swan, inside a pig, inside the king's previous wife. <laughs> and Henry was a warrior king and a famously messy eater, which is why he had his artisans fashion him a special wipe-clean metal onesie. But after his time, of course, uh, monarchs became increasingly refined and their armour was melted down to make spoons. Really? Yes, yes. And of course, once cutlery became fashionable at court, it soon became a way to impose class distinctions. As a general rule, the more silverware there is on your host's table, the less likely they are to clean it themselves. <laughs> As I believe the following scene demonstrates... What's wrong, darling? You seem nervous. I had no idea your family was so posh. How am I meant to use all these knives and forks? Oh, it's very simple. You just start on the outside and work your way in. Well, I just remember not to eat peas off my knife. Ah, uh, no, actually, it's a vulgar misconception that you shouldn't do that. In fact, the proper way to eat peas is off a knife. Really? Oh, yes, yes, as long as you use a new knife for each pea. That's what all those <laughs> knives are for. What about that tiny little one there? Oh, that's for peeling the peas. <laughs> Why would you peel a pea? Oh, it's one of the first things Nanny teaches you, so you don't make a dreadful fool of yourself when you're eventually introduced to your parents. <laughs> Look, if, I, if I'm going to die of embarrassment anyway, why don't I just kill myself now? Oh, yes, that's what the long knife on the top's for. 
Interesting, but of course, cutlery is not universal. In cultures in which people eat with their fingers, it's traditional to use only your right hand, the left hand being for wiping your bottom. I advise not doing both things at the same time. <laughs> unless you're Elvis, and look how that ended. <laughs> but if you're going to have a dedicated cleansing hand, I recommend the one with which you're most adroit. Putting food in your mouth requires minimal deftness. You might not accomplish it as daintily with your clumsy hand, but I think it was Gandhi who said, it's better to face the world with pesto up your nose than a poorly maintained bumhole. <laughs> Much religious doctrine around eating is hygiene-based. Judaism and Islam are especially hot on food safety. Those dietary laws might seem overzealous today, but that was the scientific wisdom at the time. Pork can give you tapeworms if it's not properly cooked. People in those days didn't know microbiology, but witnessed someone getting sick after a hog roast and then saw a pig happily eating that sick. <laughs> Pigs might be unfairly judged as being dirty, but they really don't do themselves any favours. And the fact that some religions have an unscientific animus against them doesn't mean there's no God, just that maybe he doesn't know everything, or that he's of a different religion from us, or that those who've interpreted him have added a few flourishes of their own. But once you accept something as the literal word of God, you're a bit stuck with it. People try and find more sympathetic interpretations, saying that when the Lord calls as evil abominations who will roast in a pit of snakes and marmite. What he's really saying is... Oh, you, what are you like? <laughs> Bear in mind, though, that many religions preach respect for living things. Properly Muslim farming means rearing animals in a natural and humane way. Recently, there's been dismay at the amount of halal meat in circulation. People were shocked and saddened to hear of the death of the lamb they were about to eat. They'd always assumed they were eating it alive. <laughs> After it had been humanely stunned and lightly warmed in a hot oven, people were outraged by the slaughter going on in slaughterhouses, the butchery conducted by butchers, if not the haberdashery that proceeds unabated in John Lewis. <laughs> They expressed pain at animal suffering, which was about as convincing as Twitter professions of grief at the death of famous strangers. Clearly, most of the people raging against the Islamification of shepherd's pie had never given the life and death of their dinner much thought, but suddenly their hearts were full of compassion for the little lamb that had been sure to go everywhere that Mary went. <laughs> Then they learned that Muslim slaughter ritual is very similar to the strictures of Judaism and got confused because they now see the erstwhile scapegoat Jewish people as an acceptable and sometimes hilarious group of useful allies against Sharia Lewis, that evil Saracen temptress who kills lambs by forcing her hand up their rear end. <laughs> Now, if we're going to have a serious discussion about the treatment of farm animals, that would be splendid. Paul McCartney once said, if slaughterhouses had glass walls, we'd all be vegetarians. But then he also said, If this ever-changing world in which we live in makes you give in and cry, say live and let die. <laughs> Licensing us to kill and murdering our language. <laughs> would it be better if I sung it? Probably better than if I sung it, but no. LAUGHTER
Some livestock are treated so badly all their lives that being slaughtered in any style is probably a blessed release. There's a strong case to be made for vegetarian and vegan diets, but despite the reputation of the filthy pig, many people find bacon the hardest thing to give up. One way of weaning yourself off it is to make your own bacon patches. Just cut rashes to size <laughs> and tuck them inside a plaster using smaller and smaller pieces each day. But be careful to remove the bacon if you go swimming, because otherwise you might catch crabs. <laughs> and perhaps we all need to be a little more grown up about the reality of what we eat. In these times of austerity and bearing in mind the environmental cost of meat production, celebrity chefs now promote nose-to-tail eating. Well, that's how you get on in TV. <laughs> are we so squeamish about what we will and won't eat? Paul, you've done extensive research into the psychology of appetite. Yes. Can you tell us why most of us balk at eating highly nutritious insects and grubs while others are happy to tuck into them? They're just weird. Is that it? <laughs> yeah, they went a bit funny after seeing Jenny Agarton naked in Walkabout. Well, I think we all did, but where are your, um, where are your qualifications from? Gillian McKeith Spins. Ooh, okay. <laughs> Well, we've talked about animal welfare, but that isn't the only consideration among those being thoughtful about their diet. Another gastro-fashion to excite chefs in recent years is local sourcing. For someone of my generation, the issue is double-edged, because I can remember a time when I craved anything that wasn't local. Local was plain and ordinary. My dad sometimes had to go to London and would return with an avocado which we didn't even know came from a hot country. The fact that it was sourced in London was exciting enough. <laughs> London was 40 miles away. In those days, the avocado was called an avocado pear to distinguish it from pears, which are pears which the avocado isn't and to which it bears almost no similarity. <laughs> Anyhow. Dad would place the avocado on the kitchen table and we would stand around it in wonder. This was in the days before the avocado bathroom suite, which was a disgusting innovation because your foot went through the side of the tub and the toilet collapsed when you sat on it. Dad would bisect the avocado lengthways and remove the stone, which we would plant each time so that it would grow to eight inches in height and then die. Dad would eat the flesh of the avocado with a spoon while we watched him impressed and Mum scoffed at his pretension. <laughs> but the way local sourcing worked was that we suffered from seasonal affected disorder. That meant you waited all year for something to come into season. You ate only that thing for two weeks and then moved on to something else. <laughs> I dreaded marrows coming on stream because of their versatility. They could be hollowed out and used as canoes, baked with a stuffing of mints, cut into rings, fried and served as an accompaniment to mints, made into chutney to spice up your mints, or served as courgettes to a giant. If you... If you'd told us there were many varieties of squash, we'd have said yes. Lemon, orange, lime and barley wine. Because in those days, cordial still meant our relations with France. And almost before we'd had a chance to get suicidal at the sight of bloody marrows, they were gone. Gone for another year to be replaced by a glut of swede. <laughs> salad existed briefly in the summer. In the winter, salad was celery, shop coleslaw and hard-boiled eggs, bulked up with cold-baked beans and crisps. 
lettuce was soft but leathery and over by autumn. And if you'd asked a greengrocer if he had any mixed leaves, he'd have said, Oh, there's plenty blowing around in the recreation ground. Help yourself. <laughs> Don't get me wrong, we ate very well. My parents grew up in the Depression and the war and could turn a carcass and some root veg into a feast. And we always had a Sunday roast because without a Sunday roast, you didn't have any leftovers. And when the deep freeze arrived, you could have roast lamb from New Zealand, which was obviously better because it was from somewhere else. <laughs> Despite being descended from migrant British sheep that had emigrated for a better quality of life. <laughs> or been transported by the Victorians for enticing gentlemen to have sex with them. <laughs> Things from abroad were just better, even if they came out of tins and were covered in condensed milk. Abroad, there were all sorts of exotic fruits which were available during our winter. Tangerines at Christmas to replace some of the vitamins boiled out of the sprouts. <laughs> Sprouts weren't really seen as food, but as something that, if simmered long enough, could absorb huge quantities of water <laughs> with which to rehydrate old people who were dried out from being brought into the warm. And people from abroad were better because they opened takeaways and cooked food that was noisy and showed us that rice isn't just for puddings. And when I finally moved to London to start my life, I saw plantains and yams, sweet potatoes, mangoes and fresh ginger. I never balked at the fact they weren't locally sourced because neither was I. <laughs> and as I became more prosperous, I became more foodie. And as London got more prosperous, it got more foodie. And I found myself in modern foodie situations. Mmm, this cheese is lovely. Oh, thank you. Yeah, we love it. Uh, I get it from this fantastic stall in Bolivia Road Market. It's the only place in England I've ever found authentic formaggio di trappola per i topi. Yeah, it's got to be fresh. The chap teleports from his small holding in Tuscany. Yeah, every Friday evening, and I hit the market at 7am. It's so fresh, it's just slightly disgusting, the way it's meant to be. Everything in Tuscany has that amazing, disgusting freshness. Why do we get it so wrong in this country. Well, that's not entirely fair, darling. I mean, remember we bought that lovely artisan cheese string from Julian Britpop's farm shop and Little Ponce on the Blag? But, you know, you really have to catch that village at the right time because it only appears once every hundred years. He is just such a breath of fresh air in the micro-cheese world. Mm. When you think what it used to be like in Britain, oh, there was no food at all. I don't think I'd eaten anything until I was 18. Well, you know, it was Yemeni sailors who first introduced solids in the 1950s. <laughs> Historians think that before that, people here lived mainly on beer and ditch water. <laughs> Proper ditch water can be amazing, but I know what you mean. I know mm. what you mean. Well, I was very lucky because my great-grandfather was a quarter Huguenot, uh, which is where I get all my flamboyant Gallic jeans. So the house was always full of omelettes and eclairs and envelopes. Oh, <laughs> Nothing like a real French envelope. Ours just don't taste the same. Because they're not real manila anymore. They use manila essence. <laughs> Do you know, our cleaner isn't even from the Philippines. Is she? No, I thought they all were, but it turns out she's from Great Yarmouth. Where is that? Well, it is in the Far East, but it's just not that far. Um, straight up the A12. We were thinking of buying it, actually, because it's so handy for our place in Albra. Mm. Once you're in Suffolk, you can knock straight through into Norfolk if you can get the planning permission. <laughs> Fantastic. 
plastic pub food all round there and great fish and chips with proper vinegar like poor people use. <laughs> we're just feeling the Portugal apartment is becoming a bit of a cliché. Yes, yes, we're just so over other countries. Mm. They're all so geared up for tourists. When we go abroad, we're looking for real hostility. <laughs> It's so amazing when travel meant conquest and plunder instead of good customer service. Yeah, yeah. When we said, we're sick of our bland food, so we're taking your bloody country. <laughs> now, coffee. Let me see what I've got in the civet cat's tray. And now there are all these British restaurants, Anglo-Kitch eateries, using cheap cuts of meat and serving in an ironic way the kind of food we ate for real when I was a child. But I have to admit, what everyone says, food has got better. Organic food came along, and that was good, even if it wasn't locally sourced. Who wants to eat pesticide just because it's from the neighbourhood? <laughs> There's nothing like growing your own, except eating things other people have grown, which is similar. It's fine if you live... It's fine if you live in a village where you leave excess produce outside on a table with an honesty box, but otherwise you end up with thousands of runner beans ripening at the same time and have to post them through neighbours' letterboxes and, and run away in a kind of good-life version of knockdown ginger. Of course, they can be freshly blanched and frozen if you have a deep freeze. Nothing like freezing your own veg, apart from buying it frozen, which is similar. <laughs> there is the pride of knowing you yourself grew it and stuffed it into the back of the freezer behind boxes of fish fingers and ice cream to be found by your children after you die. <laughs> but the game of eating what you picked yourself is really for six-year-olds. You've only just discovered that vegetables grow in the ground and aren't dropped down Tesco's chimney by Santa. <laughs> they know about nature because it has its own table at school on which you can put twigs on a Monday morning. <laughs> My parents bought their enormous chest freezer in the 70s. It was finally unplugged when they downsized about 15 years ago and still hasn't defrosted. <laughs> use it to measure climate change, which brings us back relentlessly to the main reason for eating locally sourced stuff. But let's imagine we had carbon emissions under control and there was no threat of climate change. Would there still be a case for local sourcing? Vicky? Well, there's a powerful nutritional argument. We have evolved to eat food that's indigenous to our area. What if we've moved? Yeah, OK, forget that. But it is important that things are fresh. 150% of all vitamins lose the will to live within eight seconds of something being picked. Um, on my diet, you try to eat things that are straight from the plant. How does that work? Well, so with stuff on trees, you need a ladder. Um, it's a bit like apple bobbing. And with climate change, it will be exactly like apple bobbing. Quite, yes. Floods are also very helpful with root vegetables uh, because it's not easy to gnaw your way through hard, dry soil. But so long as you have some good swimming goggles, you know, you can get your face right into soft mud and then help yourself to carrots, potatoes, parsnips. Whoa, whoa. Do you know how much sugar there is in a parsnip? No. no. Well, it's not known as the diabetes turnip for nothing. <laughs> How much does it have to pay? OK, well, not many people call it that. It calls itself that. Ah, like radio presenters make up their own nicknames, add a Y to their name, insist everyone calls them that, and then say, oh, it just kind of stuck. Yeah, all nicknames are to be grown out of. I mean, I can't abide meeting people who say, oh, my real name is Penelope, but when I was younger, my little brother couldn't pronounce it and called me Ploppy, so everyone calls me that. And I think, you're 38 and you're representing me in court. <laughs> 
What a lot of people don't realise is that a single parsnip contains more sugar than a lorry load of Kit Kats. Is that true? <laughs> Can you prove it isn't? It's not up to me to prove that it isn't. How do you know that? I don't. I just don't think it's my responsibility to disprove your unsupported assertion. Ah, that's exactly what they want you to think. Who? <laughs> Agribusiness. Big Pharma. Big Pharma doesn't mean a big pharma. <laughs> Sounds like it. It's short for pharmaceuticals. Drugs! Oh, yes, please. This is doing my head in. <laughs> the point is that most of what we eat bears little resemblance to what was available a few thousand years ago. Fruit used to be much more sour. If we take the temptation of Eve, there is no mention of deliciousness in Genesis chapter 3. It took Satan in the form of a talking snake to persuade Eve to eat the fruit of the tree of knowledge, and her only reaction was to realise she was naked. Before that, she'd been eating the berries of the hedge of absent-mindedness. <laughs> Most fruits have been cultivated for centuries to produce hybrids that make them nice. But it seems doubtful there is any great need for any of the more recent high-tech innovations in food, most of which serve mainly to force farmers even further into subjugation by corporations. The reason for malnutrition is not a lack of food globally, but poverty and inequality. We could produce enough healthy food for everyone if the developed world had the will, but it's too busy stuffing its face and holding conferences on starvation. And we have food banks in a rich and developed country, admittedly the only banks that are of any social value. But if the... <laughs> But if the others weren't run by such bellends, we wouldn't need the food ones. <laughs> they haven't been necessitated by crop failure or swarms of locusts eating their way through Asda. It's the parasitic worms of global finance and the plagues of Osborne and Ian Duncan Smith that are blighting the country's dinner tables. Now, I know that sounds like dated 1960s leftist metaphor and that today we're more careful in our use of language. People used to talk about bloated capitalists, but now realise that's irritable bowel syndrome. <laughs> Which brings me on to the subject of food and health. Lack of food is not the only dietary problem facing humankind. We also eat badly, given the chance, and we crave things that aren't always good for us. Cheaply produced, unhealthy food is aggressively marketed at us, but some also blame evolution, the argument being that we evolved to crave foods, small quantities of which we need, but which were much harder for our ancestors to come by than they are for us, principally salt, sugar and fat. It's a palaver to mine salt, unless you're a despot with access to dissident labour. <laughs> it can be extracted from the sea, but why would anyone have thought that was a good idea? Any of our ancestors who tried seawater would have noticed it's revolting and makes you ill. Why would you conclude that the very thing making it undrinkable would be yummy on something called chips when they were invented? <laughs> salt is only nice on things that are quite nice anyway, so there must have been a lot of evolution and accidental gentle seasoning involved in our getting hooked on it. But that is what's said to have happened. Why is it then that if you stop putting salt on your food, you get used to it in a few days and find restaurant food too salty? Which, in evolutionary terms, is like primordial slime becoming prime minister overnight, which is exactly what happens. <laughs>
When it comes to sugar, uncultivated land of the kind lived in by early humans yielded little in the way of sweet fruit and then only some of the time. Sugar gives us a burst of energy and stimulates dopamine, making us feel briefly glad to be alive. It's fast-acting and highly addictive, which is why grandparents and perverts use it to manipulate children. <laughs> It also makes our bodies store fat, so we can say... I love my new curves. And... I've got more to grab hold of. Both pleasing euphemisms for approaching heart failure. <laughs> but for our ancestors, body fat was essential for survival. And before dairy farming, the fat they ate was from meat. And fire enabled them to cook it and therefore eat more. Raw animal being hard to get through and hard to digest. A bit like the government's data retention and investigatory powers bill, which could also <laughs> benefit from the application of fire. <laughs> Once we could cook, humans got a massive dietary boost because we could eat high-carb tubers and high-protein and high-fat meat. But first we had to catch it, which was a haphazard affair. If you think how rubbish you are at darts and that pub walls don't run about, think what it was like for cave people, which is why we had to develop meat rage. Today we eat too much meat and tend to crave it in salty processed form, as I mentioned earlier. But dietary villains change. Salt is getting a much better press lately. Maybe Max Clifford used to represent it and now it's had to find someone more reputable. <laughs> there are also now those who say the danger of eating saturated fats has been exaggerated and that people with low cholesterol and low blood pressure, like me, are not only better people, but at little risk from butter. True, drop toast lands butter side down only if you use actual butter. What would be the point of Sod's Law if it led to margarine being contaminated and therefore improved by a filthy kitchen floor? <laughs> but other than that, butter is better. Even lard isn't necessarily unhealthy. In fact, animal fats are better to fry in than almost all vegetable oils because unlike Melanie Phillips, they don't become rancid and toxic when heated. <laughs> But there's no doubt that we crave foods high in sugar, salt and fat and often refer to them as comfort foods. And there is the association of things being treats, of being given an ice cream when we'd fallen in stinging nettles. Not just because Mr Whippy is 60% Savlon, but because he could stop us crying. And food has a social role, connected to family and friendship and hospitality. No one says... Oh, why not come over on Friday evening? We'll look at each other for three hours. <laughs> the offer of food gets round the awkwardness of inviting someone you like to come and hang out with you. Any silences can be filled with mints or ricotta and spinach. <laughs> and each Valentine's night you can hear a pin drop in every restaurant in the land, booked up as they are by people who've run out of things to say but haven't given up on each other. <laughs> Meals are a fulcrum of our shared humanity. So, Vicky and Paul, we're nearly done, but before you go, to show my appreciation, I've prepared a few nibbles. Oh, God, not finger buffet. Doll's house food. Oh, I have to go to so many do's where I wish I'd eaten before. I end up standing by the kitchen door, tripping people up as they come out with the trays. OK, right. I mean, I can get about eight canapes in my mouth at once, but, you know, there's always some dainty 20-something ingenue who's insisting on eating one of them a bite at a time, even though it's the size of a five-pence piece. It's like cherry tomatoes, genetically engineered to fit in their mouth in one go. So don't cut it in half, you soppy cow! It's not going to make you look any thinner! <laughs>
Well, uh, Vicky, the pizza I didn't slice is for you. Excellent. Good man. Just fold it for me, would you? Uh, aren't you on an unpicked food diet? Uh, we're allowed treats. I say, Jeremy, these miniature Yorkshire puddings are delicious. Those are earplugs. The archers are on next. <laughs> Help yourself. Take a couple. I might have a third one. Why? Well, having problems with my high-fibre diet. <laughs> Fair enough. So good night, listener, and eat well. Jeremy Hardy Speaks to the Nation was prepared by Jeremy Hardy with additional written ingredients by Paul Bassett Davis. The perfect accompaniment was provided by scrumptious dish Vicky Pepperdine and acquired taste Paul Bassett Davis. Chef de cuisine was David Tyler, and the audio feast was a positive banquet for the BBC. Well, next week, Jeremy will be instructing us on how to define oneself in terms of regional, cultural and geopolitical identity without tears. This is BBC 